So, uh, should we start with beer or what? We should start with beer. Yeah, what you got? I have got some Yeva Light. Well, that sounds good. I Yeva had a, Light. I, I found Is it a because Dunko... it's a weekday? No, I just, I've been drinking a lot more of this because it's good, you know, it's not light on flavor, but it's mm. um, less alcohol. And I found, it's not that I drink too much, it's that I drink too fast. Like, mm-hmm. you give me a normal size bottle of beer and I'll be done with it in like two minutes and then I'll be like, well, I kind of want another and then I'll drink too much because I drink too fast but if I drink half strength beer then I drink the perfect amount yeah I thought I would do the on microphone just do the bottle opening yeah me too me too so you're, you're drinking Yeva right now yeah Yeva yeah uh my problem with Yeva I love Yeva uh-huh. uh usually but occasionally I'll ha- I'll be off on it because it is it's very hoppy, but it's not like the the you know citra hops. It doesn't have the kind of fruity flavor of your American hops, and it and it and it kind of turns me off occasionally where it's so bitter and so you know in the in German herb that I get a little bit of a, a t- like a dry mouth from from Yeva. I don't know if the, I've never tried Yeva light before. Is it is it like that too? It's pretty. It's really still very hoppy. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I just like I like that astringent or drying kind of. Yeah, it's trocken. It's dry. Yeah. Um. So I've got a beer too. Uh, I've got great. Cheers. Cheers. Hold on. Hold on. I'm gonna open mine. It's a. Um. Hold on. Yeah. Oh, that's a. Uh, Flensburg. Nope. You think it's um? It's a Zwickel. I think I talked about this at one point on a podcast in the past. It's this um. By Reuter Brauerei, Zwickel. Do you know what it's? Oh yeah. Do you know mm-hmm. what a Zwickel is? I mean, it's a, it's a lager. It's I think. like a Keller beer, right? It's exactly. It's, it's uh. Um, I don't know enough about. If I had to, if you put a gun to my head, I'd say it's like a steam beer. I guess that's like yeah. Yale ale yeast, but lagered. That's right. Yeah, and the name the name is weird. It's it comes from Zwickelhahn, and that's the. Apparently, I just looked at, I didn't, I didn't just look this up. I looked it up a, a long time ago. But um, the Zwickelhahn is like the tap that you put into the into the cask. And the first time you tap the cask, uh, the, the, then they call that a Zwickel. Uh, and it's reserved for the actual brewmaster to drink himself. Pretty cool. Interesting. Yeah. He gets to save it for himself. So it's got to be good because he's saving it for himself. Anyhow, I'm going to drink it now. One would expect. It's kind of malty. I'm yeah. surprised by it. It's good, though. Mm. Cheers. <laughs> I drank first. Uh, no, you didn't. I've been drinking this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, As I said, I go fast. Yeah, that's good. All right, so let's get into it. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, can I start? You sent me a, um, you gave me something to read in the context of what we're going to talk about, and I want to ask you about that. But maybe maybe I can describe what we're going to talk about. Um, yeah, go for it. Namely, uh, because of the election... We, we postponed releasing our episode and, you know, like everyone, we were on pins and needles uh, in spite of the fact that we were relatively certain of the outcome or were very hopeful about the outcome and had reason to be hopeful based on, you know, data or thought we thought so. And, and then as it turned out, um, those data that we were relying on uh, were not as reliable as we thought, or maybe they were. And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, namely, that's the, what we're going to talk about. Exactly. The polls, the polls were there and they were telling us something 
And what it is they were telling us is what we want to talk about. But uh, yeah. I think a lot of people presume what they were telling us is that we could be absolutely 90% certain that not 90, that's not right. We could be, uh, what was it? 70% certain that Joe Biden would win the election. And then suddenly it became a little more dicey than that, or at least that's the way people perceived it. And so they started to say, hey, we've been fooled again by these polls. And that's, again, what we want to talk about. Is that the right way to think about polling in the context of elections? And is there a difference between the kind of data we get when we poll and ask people their their opinions and their intentions to act in some way? And data, let's say, about, you know, baseball, as we talked about in the last couple of episodes. And then in this context, you gave me an assignment. And the assignment was to uh, read up on a particular paradox, the Newcomb paradox. And I had not heard of it before, was completely unfamiliar with it. And I have to profess to being a little befuddled by the paradox. So maybe you could explain that paradox to me. And then, um, and then, in, and then after you've explained it, I'll explain why I'm befuddled by it. Okay, well, um, I have to say the the paradox was more of something that just got the wheels spinning in my head. So I'll give you the paradox, and then I'll give you my kind of take on it. Okay, um, distillation of what interests me about it, because mm-hmm. like a lot of these things, it you know when you get into the the technical philosophy of it, you get really bogged down in things that I I think are sort of beside the point. Um, at least the point that came to my mind when I read it. So mm-hmm. anyway, here's the the basic paradox is imagine that you are confronted with uh, two boxes um, and you have the choice. You can either take only box B or take both boxes A and B. Okay, And you get what's inside of them, you know, like a game show. Mm-hmm. Um, box A is clear. And always contains a thousand dollars. Clear as in transparent. You can literally transparent, see transparent as in you can see it. Yes, mm-hmm. you can see what's in it, and there's a thousand dollars in it. So if you take boxes A and B, you get what's in box A, which is a thousand dollars. Box B is not clear. You can't see inside of it, and it's what is in it has already been set by uh, this other player in the game, and we'll get to them in a second. So. Box B, if the predictor has predicted that the player will take both boxes A and B, then box B contains nothing. If the predictor has predicted that the player will take only box B, then box B contains a million dollars. So the, the player... The predictor, by the, the way, player, can I just be clear? The predictor is the other player, the player uh, who who predicts what predictor, I'm going to do. Right. And, and in, in this thought experiment... In this paradox, this predictor is either infallible, or at least you think that the predictor is an extremely reliable predictor of your choices. Mm-hmm. It's predicted many of your choices accurately in the past and never given you a wrong answer. And so you have a high degree of confidence that it's going to get this one right. So uh, you have the choice now. Do I take what's in box B only? on the assumption that by taking box B, my choice of box B has been accurately predicted and box B will contain a million dollars. Seems relatively clear. But also, it kind of doesn't really matter what the predictor predicted that you would do because the prediction's already been made. What's in box B is already set. There's no going back now. There's no downside to you choosing boxes A and B now because regardless uh, of 
whether you choose box B or boxes A and B, whatever's in box B is in box B, which you get, right? You get what's in box B regardless. And you also get the $1,000, right? If I choose both boxes, yeah, yeah. If you choose both boxes. And if, uh, yeah, so it's it's this sort of mathematical paradox of you have two optimal strategies that seem to tell you to do opposite things. And a, a perfectly rational person confronted with this choice is confronted with two perfectly rational options that contradict each other. Um, Can I so say, I mean, I, I don't understand why one of these is a rational choice. And I know that that's the problem because I know that like people get split half right. and half here. Exactly. But and I, the, the way that this is usually presented is that you present people with this puzzle and everyone is perfectly confident of their strategy, but they don't agree with each other. Yeah. I just don't get the um, paradox here. I, I'm curious. I'm curious what your I'm curious what your strategy would be. Okay, here's your it is. intuitive gut gut reaction. Okay, here it is. There are a couple. There's something I have to posit here that I'm just going to posit, and then we'll talk about this later because I think this is what's important to you anyhow. But um, maybe uh, I posit that this is some kind of magical person, the 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 predictor who is going to predict what I do right. Every time, just every time he's, he or she is going to be right about what I choose. So given that uh, assumption, then then I conclude that the only possible choice is the maximalist choice of both boxes. I'm a both boxer all the way, basically because the possibility that I get nothing and the possibility that I get a thousand... And, and you get a thousand for box A and nothing for box B because the machine has accurately predicted that you would pick both boxes. All you have to go on is what you think it thought you would do. Right. But if I if I chose, but the problem is the problem is that you can't tell what it think what it thought you will do because you don't know what you're going to do. Yeah. So, but then I then I would choose both because if I don't choose both. I mean, if I choose both, then I have the possibility of getting a million. Maybe it chose, maybe it chose, you know, maybe it predicted I would choose it or not. If I choose both, I definitely get a thousand. If I choose only B, maybe or maybe I will be wrong about the box predicting that I will choose only B. In that case, then I will get a thousand. Uh, I mean, that is to say, in that case, I will get at least a thousand. If I choose... Right. If you, I choose, you can't, you can't walk away with nothing. I could walk away with nothing in the case that that I that that I wrongly think in, that, that the, you chose B, but it predicted you would take both. Correct. That's the possible. That's the only possibility in which I could take nothing. But I don't think that's even an actual possibility, because uh, because I well no, let me take that back. Because that's, you already. <laughs> so I, I think that we should sort of stop the bleeding and first of all uh, say that the most recent literature on this says basically, you know, it, it, you you sort of intuited it, which is that there are some extra assumptions you have to make given the setup and what those assumptions are determine what the best strategy is. Yeah. So the paradox itself is kind of, it's, it's interesting and it, it, it frames an interesting question, but it's not in itself... Uh, a really like a solvable problem but for me what i would do is just boil it down to its pure essence and say imagine that there's a machine that can read your mind and perfectly predict your choice yeah right and the machine is standing next to you right 
Um, and you can read the readout of what it predicts about your choices, right? So let's imagine that you're trying to decide, uh, you know, do I want pizza or Chinese food for dinner? Something mm -hmm. completely pointless. Um, and the machine, you know, reads everything about the, you know, not just your brain, but your body and your surroundings and the universe around you, taking into account every physical influence it possibly could to predict your decision. And it says, I predict you will choose hamburgers. Wait, right? was that one of the choices? Okay. Oh, well, no, Chinese. Yeah, fine. I predict you'll choose Chinese. Okay. Okay. There's no reason that you couldn't just say, oh, well, because you said I'll take Chinese, I'll take pizza instead, right? There's no reason that you couldn't just choose the opposite of whatever the machine predicts. Yeah. And the reason that that works, even if determinism is true and free will is a lie, is because what the machine hasn't included in its calculation of your decision is the output of the machine's process of figuring out what you're going to choose. Yeah. Right? The machine has read everything and come up with an output, but what it read didn't include its output. It couldn't. It didn't have its output yet. Right? So any sort of, like, behavior-predicting, future-predicting device is going to be vulnerable to this problem of recursion. That yeah. The output of the prediction becomes an input to the system that the machine's trying to predict and therefore makes it unpredictable. I mean, right? again, this, this is on the presumption that it is genuinely infallible. I mean, that it is not genuinely infallible. If it's just infallible, no matter what I choose, it will be right because it's just as always right. If that's the case, if it's magic, in that case, right. then... It, then it, then I have only right. one choice, which is choose both of those boxes. Right. You know, like choose in the case of of choosing one, both or one. Then I should just always choose both in that case because sure. <laughs> but assuming magic, everything's possible. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah, not super interesting to me, right? the The point for this is that even an infallible, uh, free will predicting machine has a problem, and that problem is the output of its predictions can then be used as input into the system it's trying to predict. And that input makes that prediction, uh, you know, it can make, it makes the system unstable. Mm -hmm. Right? The, the stability of what I was going to have for dinner was disrupted because I had this additional input of what a machine told me it thought I was going to have for dinner. And I can just be a jerk about it and say, no, I'll have the opposite. Mm -hmm. And, there's nothing there's nothing constraining me from doing that, even assuming the machine is perfect, because it was a perfect predictor of the situation when it made the prediction. But after it's made the prediction, the situation is different. It's made a prediction, right? And Correct. the fact that it's made a prediction influences the system it's trying to predict. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I can... I can read the inferences of what you're saying, and, and the inferences are that, that pulling we treat as highly predictive, uh, something analogous to our magical, you know, nearly infallible predictor in, in the paradox we were talking about. Right. And I think the point that I want to, uh, the point that I want to emphasize here is that even the magical infallible predictor is not infallible. Right. That there's no logical, not, no logically consistent way to construct a predictor that is infallible because it can't account for the effect of its own predictions on the system it's predicting. 
Yeah, okay, I got that. Unless that infallible predictor is completely outside the system and never has any contact with it whatsoever. Yeah. In which case, it's a little hard to say how it could predict a system that it doesn't know anything about. Um, but that's a completely different, equally problematic, but different question. Let's just talk about margin of error for a second, because um, polling is, I mean, it's really, it's really a way of trying to understand a population, given that you can't see the whole population, or that it's impractical to go and talk to every single person in the population. Um, so when people talk about, oh, candidate A is supported by 52% and candidate B is supported by 48%, uh, with a 95% margin of error of 3.1%, right? So we have 52 and 48, and we have a margin of error of, let's say, plus or minus three, mm -hmm. right? So what does that actually mean? It means that in some way I'm 95% sure that if my sampling was representative, that the true support for candidate A is somewhere between 49 and 55%. And the true support for candidate B is somewhere between 45 and 51%, right? But notice that that doesn't mean that I'm 95% sure that candidate A is has more support than candidate B. Um, and also, when we say if my sampling was representative, well, represent, representative in what way? Representative according to what measurement? Representative according to their height? Right, that for every hundred people who are six foot tall, I have one person who's six foot tall. Um, there's lots of things a sample might need to be representative of. Okay, we want our sample to be representative of, well, we want it to be representative of people who vote, people who turn out and actually vote in the election. So for every hundred people who turn out, we want to have one person in the sample, ideally. And for every... Uh, person who doesn't turn out well ideally we'd have nobody in the sample who doesn't turn out um but we've already got a problem because we're trying to be representative of a population that literally does not exist right if you're doing a poll before an election by definition the population of people who voted doesn't exist so that's a lot different than saying i want to be representative of all uh people age 45 to 54, because at least those people exist and have existed for a while, and there's a specific number of them. But when you do a poll, the number of people who voted and the composition of the electorate in terms of demographics, it, it's not fixed. It doesn't exist. You couldn't, there's no way you could predict it 100% accurately because you couldn't even measure it. <laughs> You couldn't even go out and look at it and find the right answer because it's not out there yet, right? It's something happening in the future. All right, so that's the first problem. We don't know how to tell whether sampling is representative 
because we don't know how to compare something that's real to something that's hypothetical. Mm. Right? These are fundamentally different kinds of things. All right, that's problem number one. Problem number two, and I think this is where a lot of people get confused. Right? They're talking about, if we talk about a 95% margin of error, I'm 95% sure that the support for candidate A is between 49 and 55%. Okay, so people say, oh, well, you know, if we want to make polls more accurate, then what we need is we need a, uh, we need to be more sure, right? We want more certainty. Mm -hmm. Let's make that instead of 95%, that seems silly. Why don't we do 99% so that we're 99% sure that it falls within a certain range. And what I think people don't appreciate is that if you want your margin of error to be more confident, that the margin gets bigger, right? In other words, if I want to be 99% sure, well, now I'm 99% sure that it's somewhere between uh, 48 and 56% or more, depending on the sample size. So it, by making myself more sure that my uh, projection, my, is, my forecast is correct, I'm actually making it less useful because now it's harder for me to tell whether there's actually a difference between these two populations or not. There's more overlap. Um, so there is an inherent trade-off between this kind of confidence and the usefulness, right? If we were willing, if we wanted to say, all right, I want a margin of error of 1%. Okay, well, at that point, I'm only 50% sure that I've got it right, mm -hmm. which is not terribly useful either. Um, all right, so say, let's throw that out. We want perfect certainty. We want to know exactly how much support any one candidate has at a particular time we do the poll. All right, so we'll sample everybody. We'll talk to every single voter and we'll get their opinion at the time. Well, it's really very expensive, so you can't do it that often. Um, but we do do it, and it's called an election. That's <laughs> yeah. An election is a poll of everybody. <laughs> Sure, they, um, they even has that name. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's a poll. Uh, you go to the polls. Uh, it's called that for a reason. And yet, an election is still a non-random sample of what voters prefer. Right? Sure. Uh, there was the highest turnout in 120 years, but it's still only 66%. That means you've still got a third of people who are eligible voters who could vote, but their preferences aren't captured in an election. Mm. Um, so you have this situation where in 2016... The leading vote getter was no vote, right? The, sure, most yeah. people didn't vote, and then most people voted for Hillary Clinton, and then most people voted for Donald Trump. So even an election is not a perfect measure of what everybody wants, because not everybody shows up. The, what the electorate wants, what people want, is not something that stays the same over time. It's not something that never changes. Uh, not only is it a complex system, which is like weather, you know, it's unstable and it's nonlinear and small changes can have big effects. Not only that, but it really matters when you ask, right? Any question sure. you ask about a system, the answer depends on when you ask it. If I want to predict whether it's going to rain tomorrow, 
Well, I could ask if it's raining today, and that might give me useful information, but it might not. And it's sort of hard to tell. Does it mean, oh, oh, the weather tomorrow is going to be like the weather is today, or is the weather tomorrow going to be very different? Asking just about the weather today isn't really going to tell me that. Um, so then, so you have all of these problems, right? Uh, making sure that your sample is representative, which is basically an educated guess, right? Mm. It can never be more than an educated guess because it's talking about something that hasn't happened yet, right? That has no answer. Literally, there is no answer. Is this sample representative? There's no way you could know. Mm. All right. Uh, the more certain you want to be about your numbers, the less useful they become. Um, even trying to talk to everybody still doesn't really work. And it also matters dramatically when you ask the question. So asking it in one week, you'll get a different answer the next week, just because it's a dynamic, complex, unstable, nonlinear system. All of that's bad enough. Um, but then you add these feedback effects, right? That the outcome of your measurement is going back into the system you're trying to measure. So I, I had this analogy. Imagine that you have a guy who has this weather model to predict the weather. And every time he predicts that there will be rain, you go out and you start a gigantic forest fire. Just because, well, if it's going to rain, we can start a giant forest fire, right? The rain will put it out. Well, that forest fire is going to have an impact on the weather. And it might actually prevent the rain from happening or cause it to happen somewhere else or at another time. Um, so maybe now the rain doesn't actually show up. Does that mean that weather modeling doesn't work? Well, no, it's just that weather modeling can't take into account the impact of the result of the weather model, right? If it did, then you'd never get an answer at all. You'd have this endless loop of processing and reprocessing. Um, and also I think it would be a little bit stupid to blame the weatherman for that, <laughs> to say, <laughs> oh, your, your stupid model couldn't account for the fact that the giant forest fire I started counting on the rain you predicted stopped the rain from happening. Well, of course it can't, right? How, how could it do that even in principle? It's not possible, mm. you know, and that's not an argument to like go back to rain dances and sun worship, right? It's just an argument to see the forecast and see the data for what it is, which is, to be perfectly honest, not very much. I wonder what we could say if we applied a Markov chain analysis to this process of polling. That is, I'm sure there are models out there that do this, but you know, if we if we add to this process a kind of chain of probabilistic um, assumptions that that is memoryless, that doesn't know anything about the previous presumptions, um, isn't there a modeler that could work with blind predictions 
that that ignores the kind of recursion effect i mean i haven't popped the hood on the 538 model but my understanding is that they do something pretty similar to that i know that they use monte carlo uh style simulations and so yeah if there's a if there's a productive way to apply that kind of analysis i would expect they probably already do that and um you know let's give credit where credit is due and it is due right if the weatherman says there's a 90 percent chance of rain and you take an umbrella with you and it rains thank the weatherman right he was right sure. if he says there's a 90 percent chance of rain between one and four inches and it rains an inch you don't say uh but you said it would rain four inches well no he didn't and also you had your umbrella with you because of the the model the prediction that the weatherman provided so you know and weathermen get it wrong and weather yeah. women you know weather people uh, meteorologists i think is the word i'm looking for <laughs> yeah meteorologists get it wrong but it's not because they're dumb and it's not because their tools are bad it's because there literally is no right answer yeah to what they're doing i think i'm going to um I'm going to continue my lo my now three episode streak of of mentioning people who have been me tooed and mention Louis C.K. and and a gag mm -hmm. that I'm not sure that we've mentioned before on the show, but something that I've always uh, found terribly humorous, which is uh, at some point I don't know before before he you know became persona non grata, uh, Louis C.K. had a, a funny bit that I first encountered on on I think it was the Conan O'Brien show where he was talking about being on an airplane for the first time. Uh, when, let me say that again, he was talking about being on an airplane and for the first time he was allowed and all of the people on board were allowed to use the internet. And before that, you'd never been able to use the internet. And then in the midst of their flight, the people, the, the pilot announced, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we're sorry to announce that we're not going to be able to use wireless services in the plane for now. So we'd like to turn off all of your wireless services. And then everybody started grousing and complaining inside the plane and saying, this is bullshit. We can't, we just, we, yeah. why can't we use our internet? And, and Louis C.K.'s response was, one hour ago, you had no idea that this was even a possibility. And now you're complaining as if you were, you were owed this. And I think that, that the reason I'm mentioning this is maybe we spend too much time complaining about the, the tremendous uh gift that we have from these polls which is you know access to data that we otherwise wouldn't have at all we i mean we we are born into deep uncertainty and we we have tools that are at our you know in our in our tool belt that allow us to have some degree of knowledge it's not certainty by a long shot and it's deeply limited deeply limited but it's still something and yeah. I think that that's the that's the thing we we should say is look we we've been able to make use of these things and and do a better job at, at going out you know if you're a, if you're let's say these are private polls and not you know the, not the public polls that we see in the news but the kind of private polls that let's say the Democratic Party the Republican Party are using to to you know go out and find their voters and and you know try to persuade them to in in one direction. Those polls are really useful. They're not perfect. They're not perfect, but they're not. They're deeply unperfect. And and when and when they don't turn out to give you when when within the range of possibilities of of outcomes that they gave you, it didn't fall within the range that your understanding of what that range meant uh, was. When it doesn't fall within that 
kind of range when it doesn't fall at the number you thought it thought it was going to, but rather at the the farther end of the possible range of possibilities, but still within the range of possibilities. Yeah. When you complain about that, that's your problem. Yeah. Right. That's your I mean, fault. You're not reading it right. If there is a and lesson, you're, and you're being about, ungrateful. If there's a lesson, ungrateful. Yeah. If there's a lesson about polling in 2016 and now. 2020 it's that when they say margin of error they're not fucking kidding yeah all right when i say there's a margin of error of three and a half points on this poll i really mean you know it could be uh you know 52 48 or 48 52 and i couldn't tell you from this right Mm. it's within the margin of error means statistically i can't tell the difference between these two things yeah. Statistically, that, they're indistinguishable. It's I just think that, that normally, you know, ba- well, normally. But let me just, just make that, one other point, which is yeah, that please, yeah. when it's outside the margin of error, how uh, how often is that wrong? Right? How often has there have there been you know polls that are saying, look, uh, you know, Donald Trump is going to win this state by thirty five points, and Joe Biden wins? How often does that happen? Well, statistically, uh, you'd expect it to happen, you know, once in the lifetime of the universe, and we're on track for that, right? Basically, never, mm-hmm. right? Polling does a very good job of distinguishing very clearly distinct groups, right? Statistics does a very good job of telling you things that you wouldn't have known otherwise. I mean, how am I going to know how the people of Indiana feel about the presidential election. Well, there's lots of very bad things that I could do. I could, for example, uh, look at yard signs. I could talk to my neighbors. (laughs) I could, you know, just go with my gut. Uh, None of those are terribly useful. Um, One thing I could do is look at past elections, but even that is kind of, you know, has a limited utility because you go back 10, 15, 20 years and the country's so different it's not clear that that means anything at all, right? The fact that polling can tell you, no, Donald Trump is definitely going to win this state. Don't don't even bother thinking about it, you know? And then other times it can say, hey, Barack Obama has a real shot at winning this, even though Democrats don't usually win Indiana. Barack Obama's, you know, he's up there. He's, he's in striking distance. He could win. You know, that tells you something, right? Differentiating the vastly astronomically improbable from the, yeah, it could happen. That's useful. And it's hmm. not something you would have otherwise. So, yeah. Um, in terms of gratitude, we don't need to necessarily be grateful, but we we just need to use the tools that we have for the purpose they're intended for. You know, a rake is not a great uh, marital aid. It just, it's not built <laughs> to do that, okay? And a dildo is not any good with leaves. Just use the thing for the purpose it was built for. But, you know, there is a, there are, you know, valid, I don't know if it's even a criticism, right? People saying, well, people rely too much on the polls and then that changes their behavior. Is that a criticism? I mean, again, the output of the prediction is affecting the system it's predicting. Mm. You know, unless you segregate it completely in space time and put Nate Silver on, you know, I don't know, Alpha Centauri. Like, mm. is going to have some impact. Uh, you know who's aware of this kind of recursive effect? 
is uh, politicians themselves. And they're very aware of the fact that an election is just a poll that has lasting effects because it gets locked in the mm. way other polls don't. Uh, because the results remain with us for a longer time than other kinds of polls do. And that's the, that's the effect yeah, of... It's the, uh, the poll that counts. Yeah. And the, and the poll that counts, though, shouldn't be treated as if it is um, really the opinion of people at all times. You hear this all the time. Elections matter. The people have spoken and this is their will. It doesn't, it's not necessarily always their will and that can change. And, you know, I think, I think you said this at some point, you, you as a politician may be misreading the will of the people in an election to also be a mandate for something that they don't want you to do. But, um, but it's recursive, right? Like the, the politicians try at least to use this idea of the poll as being permanent um, when in fact, from experience, they know full well, your opinions are fungible. They can change over time. And, and particularly, you may have preferences that change over time and you may not really be giving them a mandate to, in the case of George W. Bush, uh, try to cancel out the social security system in the United States in 2005 or yeah. something like that. You know, like there are all kinds of things that, that, um, that you're not really telling them to do when, by, by giving them, you know, the keys to the car. Uh, so, um, but politicians are aware of this and they try to make it feel like they they have the full will of the people behind them at all times. And it's just not the it's not really the case. And I think politicians know that better than we do. Um, we often these days treat elections as a more complete decision than they really are. We, we just start we're in a I think the, mm. the, the lesson we're trying to learn more here. Final. Yeah. The thing that we're trying to say here is that nothing is final and and things are changing all the time. They're they're in a constant state of flux, and uh, and and polls allow us a bit of certainty for a time and a bit of predictive certainty about the future, but nothing too much. And that's just a you you kind of have to be comfortable with this, these facts. You sent me a little bit of homework as well for this, yeah. and I wanted to give you a chance to set that up. Sure, yeah. No, I sent you a, an article by, I don't know the person's name. What was the person's name? Let's look it up here. Pull that up here. It was in uh, the New York a, Times. It was in the New York Phil Times. Phil Clay? Phil Clay, yeah. Visiting professor from Fairfield University. Uh, sent an article. Um, interesting character, this guy. He was in the military for a lengthy amount of time. And he starts off with an anecdote that is familiar, I'm sure, to a lot of people right now, which is that at the time when there was no certainty during the coronavirus, no scientific certainty about the behavior of the virus, both his wife, who was pregnant at the time, and his mother-in-law, uh, were quite ill, and mm, he was left with the uncertainty of what to do with them. He was, he didn't want to send his mother-in-law, who was starting to really lose, uh, have lower oxygen levels, deeply lower oxygen levels, dangerously low oxygen levels, and he wasn't sure what to do with her. He didn't want to send her to the hospital because that, at the time, as we all remember, uh, if you ended up going to the hospital, she might have been put into uh, a quarantine that would never have allowed anyone to see her again. And they may never have been able to even say goodbye to her. And so 
so there was that kind of uncertainty and and that all sounds very you know distressing but it was a pleasant story in the end because it was a it took a positive turn on on the nature of human existence it, it was a kind of defense of human existence as um as one that can't be quantified that our best defense our best consolation over and against this level of uncertainty is simply to um to embrace it lean into it maybe um accept the uncertainty and and lean into uh the kind of aesthetic pleasure that one can have in embracing human relationships in in this situation and um yeah uh, but i mean know. i do want to yeah please go ahead you know it it does these kinds of things grind my gears in a little bit of yeah, okay. a way. Yeah. First of all, surely what you just said is true regardless of what data science does. Yeah, okay. Right? Surely leaning oh, yeah. into human experience and empathy and relationships is an important part of your life, um, whether it's 1600s and we still think the, well, I want to say we still think the sun goes around the earth, but we still they think that, that letting out that your blood will will heal you from uh, right, right. you know certain like, diseases the, like these are these are just true and you know imperfections or limitations of data analysis mm -hmm. don't have anything to do with that <laughs> right it's the sort of well, it's the way of saying well you know you can't really it's as if he's arguing which i don't think he is but maybe the new york times editors have framed it in this way which yeah yeah yeah, which is that, well, you can't trust data, so, you know, X. Well, hold on here. Let's pump the brakes. Um, and <laughs> the coronavirus example is also very instructive because, again, it, it's another example of this recursive effect of modeling and predictions that really, I think, needs to be front and center in the conversation, right? So in Germany, we had this experience. We were not one of the first countries hit, and... We saw what was happening, what happened in China first, and then what started happening in Italy. And all of the public health experts said, look, we need a lockdown right now because if we don't lock down and this disease continues to spread, our health system will be overwhelmed and it'll be very, very bad. So we've just got to shut everything down. Just do it right now. And that's what we did. And we sat around in our apartments for a month and people started to go a little bit crazy. And the worst case scenario never materialized hospitals never filled up we could still take uh we could still take patients from other countries and and uh you know the result was a lot of people understood that as the predictions having been wrong right oh the scientists panicked us over nothing and it wasn't really as bad as they said well hold on a second, right? Why wasn't it as bad as they predicted it could be? Well, because we took the measures to avoid that worst case scenario, right? The prediction that things would be terrible changed our behavior and made it so things would not be terrible, at least at the time, right? That's not a failure of prediction. That's a success. Mm. That's a successful prediction. That's a prediction doing the job of a prediction, which is to help you optimize your future to help you observe, to help you examine the range of possible futures and choose the one that you'd like to inhabit and then make, take the actions that lead that to be your future and not something else, right? That's what a prediction is supposed to do. A prediction is supposed yeah. to say, if you want your life to look like X in a year, then you need to do this. It's not to 
always in the end be right, right? It's to optimize, your prediction is designed to optimize an outcome, not turn out to be correct. Um, and, but what I think in another sort of recursive uh, feedback effect, what this has done is so many people having perceived this prediction as being incorrect, it's actually made them less willing to do, uh, to put up with restrictive measures in the future because they perceived the first ones as having been unnecessary when in fact they were the thing that made them seem unnecessary in the first place, which yeah. ironically could lead to, you worst know, a second way of actually being worse. Although current data is right now looking like that won't be the case, at least in Germany. Um, yeah. So this prediction has even a second order effect of making people less willing to pay attention to predictions, <laughs> um, which in a perverse way, might make them more accurate, which is not a good thing. Hmm. But I, I think that in this case, um, all of human existence is is shot through with this interaction with, you know, uncertainty, right? Like we may be in a completely uh, deterministic universe in which all of our choices are predetermined, but experientially for us, it doesn't feel that way. Right. I mean, like we, we experience it and and mm. and in order for the system to continue, it, it it's kind of needs to be this way that we experience it as one in which we have something like free will. And that that for us, at least psychologically, phenomenologically, we're constantly being confronted with this at every moment, just just at every moment. Uh, and so we're, we're constantly looking for some relief from the pressure that that comes from this. um engagement with uncertainty and exactly what you're saying, right? Like the worst kind of uncertainty is the kind in which you start acknowledging the effects of your choices and how those will, you know, you try to predict the results and then the results of those results. And if you change the, the results, you try to see how those results would change alternatively and then to weigh the difference between those results. You're kind of constantly doing that. You're aware, we're aware of this recursiveness and then still try to change it, right? We still try to affect that recursive system. And um, uh, we're trying to be just a little bit smarter at all times. And uh, there is some relief to be found in simply embracing something like passivity, right? Like to, to, to sit back sometimes and say, no matter what, this is gonna develop in some way and uh, I can make choices the consolation in all of this is change happens. And so nothing is ever forever. Uh, and so that's, that's okay. Right. I mean, like, I think that's mm. the, that's the, the kind of consolation that he's trying to point out to here. There's, there's a, there's a kind of, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a way to alleviate the emotional pain of all of this, which is, is, uh, you know, accepting that you're not going, you can do all of this, do all of it. And then at the same time, accept that, you know, just as much as the person in the 1600s, just as much as, you know, the whoever it was that wrote the Epic of Gilgamesh, we are as much the the pawns of fate as as those people were. And you're going to be no matter what. You can't change that. And then to be open to whatever is, whatever happens. That's okay, isn't it? I mean, like, it's okay to say, do all of the predicting and embrace, yes, uh, uh, trust science rather than fiction. Uh, that's fine. Trust science. 
but science isn't perfect and 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 that's a fiction right like the idea that that science is somehow better than than uh, that yeah. is, that science somehow has a kind of magic is 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 a just a qualitative mistake and be okay with that yeah well and as i've said before i don't think you should trust science i think you should make an effort to understand science because the cool thing about science is that it is in principle right accessible to be understood by by a, an outsider who's interested in getting to the bottom of it there is always an answer if you go to science and you ask why how do you know explain this to me a scientist will always have an answer for yeah, you the only limitation now, is you take, and your time right like it's not uh, right like, it might take 10 years but you'll be able to chase things all the way down until a point where a scientist says look i don't really know why but that just seems to be the way it is yeah. Right. And you can go see for yourself. Like, here's an electron microscope and see, like, you know, what do you make of it? But I don't really know. It just is that way. Mm. Uh, but in the meantime, here's all these inferences that we can build out of that. Yep. It's not shamanic and in some way. So, like, it's not, you know, it's not some kind of, you know, priestly, you know, no uh, magic. It's not magic. It's not, a, it's not a mystery cult. It's not, yeah, a, a, a priesthood or, you know, not something that needs to be the sacrifices don't need to be made to it we don't need to have faith in it or just do your best to try and understand it and you you know make your judgments accordingly i mean you can have like you can have faith you can have faith that like that whatever happens is gonna happen you can have hope <laughs> that's that's yeah i mean yeah, you, can you can have hope you can have reasonable hope based on past experiences and you know getting an idea of the lay of the land i mean we've just had you know, what you might colloquially call a miracle hmm. uh, in science of, you know, a novel disease having a functioning vaccine that's tested and proven out within nine months. Yeah, at 90%. You know, you might say, right, a 90% effective. effective. And you might say, well, that's a completely new, you know, it's a miracle. And wow, that's incredible. But you can also chase that you could chase that down and say, well, how exactly are they doing it? And it relies on these technologies that have been built over, you know, dozens and dozens of years by thousands of smart people building on each other's work. And even when the pandemic started, there were several groups of scientists who all said, you know, this is unprecedented. We've never done this before, but I think we can do it. I think we know how to do it and we're going to give it a shot and see if it works. Yep. And it's, it's proven out. And so, you know, that's, that's why you don't need faith in science because Science properly done should eventually show you the goods. It should eventually say, look, look at what we did. Mm. Um, you know, and it's like the problem with data. What's the, is data? Well, data does not answer any, any question you could possibly want to ask, right? It's not a, it's not a panacea, but people, I find people say that in a way of downplaying what it can do, mm. right? Data, data analysis, scientific analysis, scientific experimentation can do a hell of a lot, right? The things it can't do are mostly when people ignorantly try and make it do something it's really was never intended to do in the first place. Mm. Um, they just sort of grab hold of one, uh, one end of it and start going to town. And it's <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> don't, don't shake it like that. All right. It's not, it's not designed to, to put up with that. Um, but sometimes you're asking for an answer that literally does not exist, right? What will be the nationality of my firstborn child's second spouse? 
there's no answer to that question. There is no answer to that question. Maybe it has a specific answer. Maybe it will never be a sensible question in the first place. There's just no answer to it. No amount of data is ever going to answer that question. The only way, the only reason you would try is if you have really no idea what the point is of scientific investigation in the first place. Hmm. Um, and if someone says, oh, they'll be Finnish, you know, and then they turn out to be Norwegian and you say, oh my God, what a horrible model. I'd say, hey, your model's pretty good. It got pretty close. I want to know more about it. Mm -hmm. uh, how exactly did you come up with that? Because I'm curious to look under the hood and kick the tires because it got close. It wasn't right, but it was close. It was scary mm -hmm. close. And I want to know how. <laughs> um, and, you know, if these are legit tools, then the person doing it should be able to say, yeah, is it this, this, and this, and this, and it's highly predictive, and it works great, and yeah, sometimes it's a little off, but you can see it works pretty well. Um, hmm. And the answer isn't to throw away the tools that work well and go back to, like, hunches and anecdotes and compelling narratives, right? The answer is to say, I don't know, but I'll try to find out. Hmm. There's one thing I can say about uh, at least your particular your particular question, right? I mean, like I can ask, like, what do blues have to do with like uh, the color of of water on on planet Zarox? That that question, you know, maybe could plausibly have an answer in some weird universe, but it but I and it might be this universe that I but I have no way of answering that and so so maybe or maybe not that that will have an answer but your question could potentially have an answer and and, yeah. and the thing is it 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 will have some answer right like that's the that's the interesting thing like one well, day it will you only will be have dead. an answer if i have a child right, but, and if that child that, I mean, gets married the and, then, and then gets married again but that's one of the answers is that like maybe you have no children or maybe you do have children Maybe you 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 maybe your parents your your child does have a, a spouse. Maybe it doesn't have a spouse. One of the possible answers is that's nonsense. There is no such thing because there is no child, or you know there is no spouse, or there is no second spouse. All of those are possibilities of making it nonsense. But all of those would be an answer to that question in some way, right? Like right now, we're at a level, we're at a place where there is no answer to that because it's not a thing yet. It's a yeah. potential thing, and that's just you know. You, that's I guess that's for a whole other podcast for us when when one day we take on time. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, let's that's, let's do that someday. Oh, don't even I'm I've been I've been chewing on that for years, um, really actually quite aggressively, and I have some, a lot of things to say about uh, about time. Uh, one thing, well, keep drinking. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. yeah, my mouth is getting a little dry. It's all the all the hops. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say is I can conclusively demonstrate to you that determinism and indeterminism are indistinguishable. Yeah, okay, that's okay. Oh my god. I can do it quickly. I'm gonna leave it at that. I can please, do it quickly please. in like two minutes. Uh, oh my god, okay, go ahead. Okay. So in order to conclusively determine whether the universe was deterministic or non-deterministic, you would need to have a perfect prediction. Right, where you have all of the inputs and you apply your rules and you get an output and then check that deterministic prediction against what actually happens. All right, so if you're trying to do that, say, on Earth and you want to make a prediction about what will happen you know, a minute from now, that means you need to know everything about everything that's going on within one light minute 
of the Earth. Mm. Because anything that's going on in that space could affect what happens in the next minute. Okay. But in order to get that information, you need to go, you need to send some kind of measurement signal out one light minute and then have it come back, which is going to take two minutes. Mm. So you're in principle, it's impossible for you to get all the information you'd need in time to actually check whether it's deterministic or not. The second problem is that when you get there, measuring what's there is going to change what's there. So that's the whole, uh, you know, mm, yeah, measuring a system. So that's an additional problem is that measuring the system is going to change it. And then you have a third problem, which is that once you've made the prediction, assuming the prediction arrives before the event, which it has to, to be a prediction, that prediction, whatever it is, also affects the event. And that's the recursion problem I was talking about. Yeah. Which you can't in principle account for because you don't know what it is yet. So my, there's th it's threefold impossible to tell the difference between determinism and non-determinism in a universe yeah. with a finite speed of light, which is our universe. The only thing I would say about that is is that does that does that preclude actual determinism or does that just preclude our ability to know determinism? It, it precludes our ability to distinguish. Basically, what's the the identity of indiscernibles? If two things are, if you can't in principle ever tell the difference between two things, they're the same thing. They're the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah. Non-determinism and determinism are in principle indistinguishable. So either there's no difference between the two. Or they're, you know, what, different perspectives on the same question, right? They're, uh, what's the word? <laughs> uh, not compatible. Although I guess that is compatibilism, isn't it? Saying that's it, that is compatible. That's like, yep. that's hard compatibilism. It's like, there's mm. literally no difference. Like, not only does it not make a difference, you could never even yeah. tell in principle. Um, they are so compatible as to be identical. Which is interesting. So, see, I told you I could do it. You did. I it. could do it in. I could do it in two minutes. <laughs> Jeez, that was easy for you. Why do people still talk about this shit? <laughs> it's easy. All right. <laughs> <laughs>